If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 3rd, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. In the lead-up to Mother's Day on Sunday, May 9th, tonight's special show is devoted to mommies both beloved and dearest. Perhaps the most famous mother in Hollywood was Joan Crawford, but not for the right reasons. Steve Pride reports. Joan Crawford was one of the biggest stars of Hollywood films in the 1930s and 40s. She often played tough, independent women, and her screen presence and characterizations attracted a movie-going audience that included a significant number of lesbians and gay men. Recently, I met with her daughter, Christina Crawford, to talk about her childhood and the release of the 25th anniversary edition of her book, Mommy Dearest. The major part that was left out of the 78 edition were the years of my adult relationship with my adopted mother. When we were both in New York, I was an actress. She, of course, had been an actress. My career was on the ascendancy. Her career was non-existent. However, it's not her adult relationship with Joan Crawford, but her childhood memories that have haunted our collective nightmares since the original version of Mommy Dearest was first published in 1978. And although until now the book has been out of print for 10 years, the film version with Faye Dunaway was always around as a reminder of her traumatic youth. Well, my brother and I called them night raids because it was like a terrorist attack and we never knew what caused it we didn't know how to anticipate it well there wasn't anything we could do anyway uh, because we were basically captive so we became this little survival team like seals you know and and but we could do nothing uh, against what happened when she went into her rages no wire hangers! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you? No wire hangers ever! Work till I'm half dead and I hear people saying she's getting old. What do I get? A daughter! 
cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her as she cares about me? What's why her hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! The wire hanger night was only one of, of many. Very often she would come and rip the bed, the covers off of us, haul us out of bed, me, because he was tied in. She'd haul me out of bed and make me do some Herculean feat of cleaning in the middle of the night in the pitch black. And then she'd make a terrible mess and leave me, and, sometime, and I'd just be crying and sweating and crying and pleading with God to let me live to grow up. And, and, uh, but one time, it didn't have anything to do with my brother or me. She got everybody in the house up in the middle of the night, and it happened to be a, quite a full moon, I remember, so we could see, even though there were no lights on. And we had a beautiful, beautiful rose garden that the man that worked as a gardener for us really uh, was a labor of love, gorgeous, beautiful roses. And she was in a terrible rage, and maybe a castration rage now that I think about it as an adult. And she cut down all these beautiful rose bushes. I mean, they were huge. Tina! Bring me the axe! And she made us cart them off with no gloves, no sleeves, so we were all bloody and bleeding. It was disgusting. And she got the servants up to do this, too, so we knew it didn't have anything to do with us. And then, to our absolute horror, uh, she cut down an orange tree. And it was like, after she did that, it, it like took the steam out of her, and she went to sleep. It was, as a child, it was a very terrifying experience because tonight the roses, tomorrow night may be me. Joan Crawford's most famous role was Mildred Pierce, the story of a mother so full of love that she sacrifices everything for her selfish, ungrateful daughter. You've been snooping around ever since I got this job trying to find out what it is. And now you know. You know, don't you? Know what? Know what, Mother? You knew when you gave that uniform to Lottie that it was mine, didn't you? Your uniform? Yes, I'm waiting tables in a downtown restaurant. My mother, a waitress. I took the only job I could get so you and your sister could eat and have a place to sleep and some clothes on your back. The irony is not lost on Christina Crawford. You know, the very interesting thing is, after she played Mildred Pierce in the movie, she adopted the language of Mildred Pierce, but not the behavior of Mildred Pierce, with me for years and years and years. She would always say how ungrateful I was. Well, there was nothing to be grateful for. Mommy Dearest sold millions of copies in its original printing, and the film has become a cult classic. But Christina believes that the longer story she tells in this new edition has an important message of its own. Until next time, this is Steve Pride. Christina had a few mommy issues, so her book is probably not the best Mother's Day gift. 
We met our favorite moms nearly 25 years ago, and they were memorable and magic. Jesse Helms has made a radical out of me. He makes me want to take off my clothes, shout from the highest tree. Make a march on Wall Street in my BBDs. Jesse Helms has made a radical out of me. Heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Two of mine are grandmothers, one a lifelong Democrat and the other a recovering Republican. These days they often complete each other's sentences, but in 1995, they only had one thing in common. Both of these North Carolina mothers had lost a son named Mark. Hello, I'm Eloise Vaughn. And I'm Patsy Clark. The first time I knew what homosexuality was, was when I went to college. I was 18 years old. No, it wasn't mentioned in my home. Nobody said anything about it. It wasn't necessary. It just didn't come up. My son was 34 when he died. He was the oldest of my four children. He was a handsome, beautiful person. He loved to sing. He had a beautiful baritone voice. He uh, finished uh, state in uh, communications, and that's why he went into the television work and loved it. Appeared in productions when he could in Raleigh and Atlanta, uh, wherever he was, sang at his brother's wedding. He was the kind of person um, who would give you the shirt off his back. He never saw anybody that he didn't like. I used to think he worked too hard to make people love him because we loved him just as he was, but he seemed to work very hard at that, and I never did know why. I do now, because he thought he knew something about himself that other people might not love him so much if they knew, and he lived like that. Mm -hmm. My Mark was, we all think they're wonderful. Of course, this is mother but he was very handsome. He was six feet, seven inches tall, and no, he didn't play basketball. He was, uh, he was not a lot of fun. He was a little irresponsible, a little lazy. He was a real human being, but there was no one you would rather be around than Mark Clark, in my view. I say he was irresponsible, and yet when it came time to face the most difficult time of his life, he faced it with total responsibility, great class, even elegance, if you can think of dying with elegance. But he did. He died with humor and class. I've never heard once in this chamber anybody say to the homosexuals, stop what you're doing. Do you realize that if they would stop what they're doing, there would not be one additional case of AIDS in the United States of America? Senator Helms had been a friend of my husband's. My husband had supported him. I always voted for him. And I felt sure that if I just wrote him a letter of explanation, he would understand. That was very naive on my part. I did write him a letter, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to make it right. And I asked him only to be more compassionate and not judge anyone as deserving what they got if they died of AIDS, because no one deserves that. And about two weeks after I'd sent that letter to him, his reply came. He started off with saying, I do not judge homosexuality, the Bible does. That's a little hard for me to take. He went on about some things that were completely extraneous to what I'd written him about. And in the last paragraph of his letter, he said, I'm sorry that Mark chose to play Russian roulette with his sexuality, but that does not change the reality of what is. That was very hard to read. 
So I did what a lot of mothers and grandmothers might do. I cried, and I walked the floor, and I cried for about two weeks, feeling totally inept because I had not reached this man's heart, and I blamed myself. But after two weeks, I thought, now, wait a minute. This is not my fault. He should have understood. And then I got angry, and then Eloise and I began on this political rampage. We got the other mothers together whom we knew. We had a meeting out at Patsy's house in her living room, and we looked at the clippings, and we talked about them, and we said, what can we do about this? And as I say, he was running for re-election at the time, so we just couldn't let it get by without doing something. And the only thing that we could think about doing was that we could oppose him, and uh, we decided that that's what we would do. At that point, we didn't know we were actually starting a political pact, but that's what it turned out to be, because when we started working and traveling, um, money began to come to us. And an attorney friend told us that when you have money, you have to be registered with the FEC and with the State Board of Elections. So we took the steps to do that, and then we were an official pact. And we chose the name Magic Pact. His daughter actually uh, suggested that magic mothers against Jesse in Congress, so it has the J in the middle instead of the G. And that caught on really well, and it was easy for people to remember. And whenever we went somewhere, we were the magic mothers, and we had bumper stickers and t shirts and <laughs> stick all kinds of buttons, all kinds of things. And we were magic. And as I say, the more we did, the more money came in. Eventually, we raised a lot of money. Yeah, we started and, with uh, a pickle jar with $5 or $20 check, and we thought, mercy, people are actually going to give us money. It was amazing. It really was, but we ended up with, what, $65,000, which is nothing when you think of what Senator Helms earns or makes or raises, whatever you want to call it. But to us, it was a lot of money. We, we really basically had 10 or 12 mothers and grandmothers, all from the late 60s up into the 80s, doing this work. And then it spread across the country, and people sent money from almost every state in the Union. We were amazed at the response. Our help came from unexpected corners, and as Patsy mentioned, it came from everywhere, from people that we didn't know and never heard of, but who felt in their hearts that what the senator had been saying for years. You see, he started out when he first gained power in the 1970s. He was a radio commentator and had a news program every night at 6 o'clock on the Raleigh station, and he always ended up with a tirade against um, civil rights. Uh, he would talk about Dr. Martin Luther King and say, Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was just amazing that he said those things, but it got power to him. And then, of course, he's intellectual. He came out against the university, and he made a statement many times that we thought what everybody ought to do is just put a fence around Chapel Hill and around those red pinkos and commies over in Chapel Hill and fence the men. And so, you know, that became passe at the end of the Cold War. And so he looked around and thought, well, who else is there? And he found the gay community. And as Patsy says, that's the last, and I'm putting quote unquote in the air as I say this, acceptable prejudice. And he's using that now. It's a pattern with him. I keep hoping for some kind of wonderful thing to happen, like Paul on the road to Damascus, and that something will really strike him. And what a wonderful voice he could be if he could have a conversion. I'm sure if he's hearing this, he's certainly not going to agree with that. But I think it would be wonderful for someone who has said the things that he has said about the gay community, if he could reverse himself and say, you know, I see this differently now.
I think as far as what the future holds, I really do think that a critical mass is building, that people are becoming more open, that they're becoming more educated, that we don't have the willful ignorance that we've seen in the past. There are so many things going on in our world now. There are books and there are articles. There are plays. There are people who are role models in other ways who are pointing a different way. And uh, I just think that things are changing. It's incremental, but I do believe that they're changing for the better. And I hope want, I live to see it. We want to be a part of that. We hope we are. We hope that we're a little part just adding to that. Senator Jesse Helms comes up for re-election next year, and every indication is that he will run again. Eloise Vaughn is 72, and Patsy Clark is turning 69 this summer. They have no illusions about mounting another campaign against Helms in 2002, but hope that they've changed enough hearts in their home state that other mothers, sisters, fathers, aunts, and uncles will carry their flag into battle. Patsy and Eloise recount their story in a new book published by Allison Books called Keep Singing. I'm very sure they shall. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Their book, Keep Singing, Two Mothers, Two Sons, and Their Fight Against Jesse Helms, by Patsy Clark and Eloise Vaughn, is available on Amazon. We'll be right back after this quick break. A snowy day for Langston Hughes, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. In 2016, the children's picture book, The Snowy Day, by Ezra Jack Keats, marked its 50th anniversary. To celebrate, Viking Press brought out an anniversary edition, complete with eight pages of special bonus material. It was the first picture book to center on a black child. The book reveals the wonderful experiences of a boy named Peter during an urban snowfall. The bonus material reveals that a letter from African-American writer Langston Hughes had made its way to the author one year after the book was first published. Hughes said, The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats is a perfectly charming little book. I wish I had some grandchildren to give it to. Yes, I do. Sincerely yours, Langston Hughes. But Hughes never married nor had children. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ward Teft. This is Judy Shepard, author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie, and A World Transformed. And you are listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. We met Zach Walls when he was just an engineering student at the University of Iowa. A speech he'd just made about his two moms to the Iowa House Judiciary Committee in a public hearing on a proposed constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage in Iowa had just gone viral with over three million views. Uh, Good evening, Mr. Chairman. My name is Zach Walls. I'm a sixth-generation Iowan and an engineering student at the University of Iowa, and I was raised by two women. Uh, My biological mom, Terry, told her grandparents that she was pregnant, that the artificial insemination had worked, and they wouldn't even acknowledge it. It actually wasn't until I was born and they succumbed to my infantile cuteness that they broke down and told her that they were thrilled to have another grandson. Unfortunately, neither of them lived to see her marry her partner, Jackie, of 15 years, when they wed in 2009. 
My younger sister and only sibling was born in 1994. We actually have the same anonymous donor, so we're full siblings, which is really cool for me. Um, you know, and I guess the point is that our family really isn't so different from any other Iowa family. You know, when I'm home, we go to church together, we eat dinner, we go on vacations. Uh, but, you know, we have our hard times too, we get in fights. Um, you know, actually my mom Perry was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2000. It is a devastating disease that put her in a wheelchair, so we've had our struggles. But, you know, we're Iowans. We don't expect anyone to solve our problems for us. We'll fight our own battles. We just hope for equal and fair treatment from our government. Being a student at the University of Iowa, the topic of same-sex marriage comes up quite frequently in classroom discussions. You know, and the question always comes down to, well, can gays even raise kids? And the question, you know, the conversation gets quiet for a moment, because most people don't really have an answer. And then I raise my hand and say, actually, I was raised by a gay couple, and I'm doing pretty well. I scored in the 99th percentile on the ACT. I'm actually an Eagle Scout. I own and operate my own small business. If I was your son, Mr. Chairman, I believe I'd make you very proud. I'm not really so different from any of your children. My family really isn't so different from yours. After all, your family doesn't derive its sense of worth from being told by the state, you're married, congratulations. No, the sense of family comes from the commitment we make to each other, to work through the hard times so we can enjoy the good ones. It comes from the love that binds us. That's what makes a family. So what you're voting here isn't to change us. It's not to change our families, it's to change how the law views us, how the law treats us. You are voting for the first time in the history of our state to codify discrimination into our Constitution. A Constitution that but for the proposed amendment is the least amended Constitution in the United States of America. You are telling Iowans that some among you are second-class citizens who do not have the right to marry the person you love. So will this vote affect my family? Would it affect yours? Over the next two hours, I'm sure we're going to hear plenty of testimony about how damaging having gay parents is on kids. But in my 19 years, not once have I ever been confronted by an individual who realized independently that I was raised by a gay couple. And you know why? Because the sexual orientation of my parents has had zero effect on the content of my character. Thank you very much. Since that day, the video of Zach's speech has been viewed some two million times. And he's appeared on over 50 news and talk shows, including Ellen DeGeneres and now IMRU. My name is Zach Walls. I'm 19 years old. I'm an engineering student at the University of Iowa. I'm studying environmental engineering and sustainability studies. I'm from Iowa City, which is where I'm also going to college. We moved to Iowa City from Wisconsin in 2000. I was born in Marshfield, Wisconsin. If you look at a map of Wisconsin, it's like right in the middle is where I was born. And Iowa if you know you, you don't really know where that is is just west of chicago where i live is four hours west of chicago on on i-80 just kind of a straight shot west i wasn't sure where iowa was but i did have this image in my mind of iowa being middle america apple pie flags so not only was i astounded by what you did i was astounded that it was legal for gays to marry in iowa mm -hmm. yeah it was a big decision. In 2005, Varnum v. Breen was filed the lawsuit that eventually made its way to the Iowa Supreme Court. And by unanimous decision, 7-0, to zero, the judges ruled that Iowa's legislative ban on gay marriage was unconstitutional due to the Equal Rights Clause of the Iowa Constitution. And that then struck down the law, which cleared the way for full 
marriage equality in Iowa, which is really cool. And it's really unexpected, too, because people think Iowa, you know, lots of corn, lots of pigs, lots of farmers, very middle of the country, kind of that heartland. I think that, you know, people think that on the coast, you've got these really progressive traditions. And people forget that the middle of the country has those, too. Iowa was actually one of the first states to allow women on equal basis with men into colleges, universities, and law schools. The Iowa Supreme Court ruled 17 years before Dred Scott that any so-called slave to enter Iowa was actually a free man. So we've had some of the strongest protections for minorities when they've been most needed, and that is a tradition and legacy that lives on today. Tell me about your mom. Terry Lynn Walls, my biological mom, was a single lesbian physician in 1989 when she decided she wanted to have children. Everybody thought she was crazy, and for all practical purposes, she, (laughs) she was. It took a lot of work being a single woman, and then on top of that, a lesbian woman, uh, to get access to reproductive technologies. But she ultimately found a sperm bank in Fairfax, Virginia, that was more than happy to work with her. So then uh, 1991 was when I was born. And then just a few weeks after she had me, she decided she wanted to have another kid. Clearly, she hadn't had me for long enough. But then, uh, sure enough, in 1994, she had my younger sister, Zebby, short for Zebediah. And uh, Zach is short for Zachariah, so two biblical names, which I thought was, in retrospect, kind of interesting choice on her part. And then she met Jackie, her wife, in 1995. They dated for a while. Terry wasn't entirely sure if she wanted to be in a relationship or not. She'd had a couple of relationships that broke her heart. And so she was comfortable not being in a relationship and raising kids on her own. But then she ultimately wound up having a commitment ceremony with Jackie in 1996, which, you know, if that hadn't happened, you know, when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, we would have been in a really, really tough place. We were in a tough place already with Jackie on board, but, you know, just the three of us alone, it probably would have been impossible. In 2000 was when we moved from Wisconsin down to Iowa and uh, 2000 was also the year that Terry was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Now, she didn't tell me and Zebby at that point. She didn't want to scare us or whatever. I was only going into the fourth grade, and Zebby was just starting elementary school. So we didn't really know until a little bit later. So then we moved to Iowa in 2000, and then it was in 2009 that uh, same-sex marriage was legalized in Iowa by that Supreme Court decision, Barnum v. Breen. How old were you when they had the commitment ceremony? I would have been five years old. Did you know what was going on? Well, it's funny. I didn't realize that they weren't actually married until 2000 or so. Because for all practical purposes, you know, I watched them walk down the aisle. I watched them stand in front of a minister and exchange vows. In my eyes, and I think, you know, in their own eyes, they were married. And I think for us, that was in a lot of ways enough. We don't seek validation of our family from anybody else. We validate our own relationships and our own family. But the fact of the matter is we didn't have the legal rights and protections that we needed as a family, you know. And this is something I've kind of thought about a lot. The state has to recognize that love and that bond between two people. If you could show that uh, the love between two gay people is somehow less than the love between two heterosexual people, maybe the state wouldn't need to recognize that relationship with the bonds and privileges of marriage, but you can't show that because it's not true. And thus, I think that really in and of itself is the biggest argument for for the recognition of same-sex couples. I mean, it sounds like you had this amazing family. When did you know that it was different? It's difference never really registered because it wasn't different. It was my family. <laughs> the way it's difference manifested was never at home. You know, I never like woke up one morning and was like, oh, my family's different. It was at school where you know, people ask, what do your mom and dad do? And it'd be like, I don't understand the premise of the question. <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, no, 
it's just not a the right question. And then, you know, there's this slow realization where, you know, you're in high school and being different becomes dangerous. Kids um, are cruel. Kids are cruel, you know, and I don't know where we get that from. I think I mean, a lot of it is that kids struggle at home with their own family situations, the need for attention. You can go down the list, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but kids become targets and difference is kind of the bullseye. And so, you know, growing up, it was one of those things where I was selective about with whom I discussed my family. But if this was a Lifetime movie, there would be that parent that wouldn't let little Johnny go over play at Zach's house. Yeah, uh, that happened. I lost uh, friends. And it was never like one of those things where kids were like, oh, you've got gay parents. We can't be friends anymore. It was more of a, a phone call was made. And then all of a sudden, you know, like Doug didn't come over to my house anymore. And this is just how it went. And so from the very beginning, my whole life has been this kind of this struggle to gain recognition, both for myself and, and for my family. And I can't wait to have that recognition because the fact of the matter is if my moms were to have come with me out here to this interview they wouldn't be married when we go down and visit family in florida they're not married they come out to support me in new york they're not married and so those protections and rights and privileges no longer exist you know if we're in texas and terry stumbles and breaks something jackie can't go visit her in the hospital and so until we've achieved these rights and protections on a national level, you know, I certainly won't be satisfied. But well, once that's done, <laughs> I'm certainly looking forward to this no longer being an issue. I'll put it like that. The House bill that Zach spoke against was defeated, and same-sex marriage remains legal in Iowa. This has been a conversation with Zach Walls, a 19-year-old Iowan who loves his mom and his mom. Don't mess with his family. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Zach Walls is now an Iowa State Senator, LGBT activist, and author. We'll be right back after this quick break. Poet Langston Hughes, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Langston Hughes was among the first innovators of a new kind of poetry, jazz poetry. Born in Joplin, Mississippi in 1902, Hughes later moved to New York City to attend Columbia and soon became interested in the goings-on in Harlem, specifically the Harlem Renaissance. Rumors of Hughes' sexual orientation began in his early years and persisted throughout his life. He was sometimes seen with another man while attending functions in Harlem. He seemed to know all about the sexual underworld, including his own description of Harlem's drag balls. Often invited to swanky affairs given by Carl Van Vechten, he developed a familiarity with the codes of a then-modern sexual subculture. Hughes, however, preferred to cultivate a sexual ambiguity until his death in 1967. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I am are you. I am are you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. In the LGBT community, the greatest of Mother's Day wishes have to go out to the late Matthew Shepard's mom, Judy. She's been on IMRU countless times, 
but one of our favorite visits involved promoting a 2002 documentary called Out in the Cold by filmmakers Eric Criswell and Martin Bedonia. Very few milestones are as profound for a gay teen as coming out to his or her parents, family, and friends. But sometimes kids find themselves rejected by the very institutions they were raised to believe in. There's a riveting documentary that takes us on a journey into the lives of gay, homeless young people. It's called Out in the Cold. My name is Eric Criswell. I am the uh, co-director, co-producer of Out in the Cold. I am Martin Bedonier, co-producer and director of Out in the Cold. I am Judy Shepard, the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation and the mother of Matthew Shepard. Homeless, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender kids living on the street. First, let's get some of the numbers and statistics so that we put this in some sort of perspective. It's estimated that there are roughly 1.3 million kids who are under the age of 21 and homeless on the streets of America. Up to 40% of those identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered. There was a term used in the film, throwaways. Could you explain that? Throwaway is a term that's used a lot for kids who basically aren't wanted anymore. Thrown away by churches, thrown away by schools, thrown away by parents and family. A question for each of you. What was your biggest surprise in doing this project? The actual number of kids on the street and the hugeness of what they're dealing with. Well, I think the biggest surprise for me is that nobody really seems to care about these kids. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. And the things that they've tried before just don't seem to work and sometimes make it worse. How you as a parent could actually make that decision that it's better for them to be gone wherever they end up being than to be in my home. Trying to understand the thought process is very difficult. We have made a lot of progress in visibility through the media and kids are more sexually aware today. Does that mean they're coming out to themselves at an earlier age? And what's the impact of that on themselves and the families? I think that this is one of the reasons why this phenomenon is happening now. With all the information that's out there about sexuality and the fact that they are not alone is encouraging people to come out to themselves younger and come out to the world younger. And they're telling their parents, and the, and the parents can't cope, don't want to know, and the kids are thrown out before they are adults and able to support themselves. Years ago, when it would run through a young person's mind that they were different, perhaps they didn't know why they were different, or they thought they were the only ones in the world and were so afraid, and didn't come out to their parents until they were well beyond depending on their parents. And now that's not the case. It's just happening so much sooner. I was really surprised by a Stanford University statistic quoted about runaways and prostitution. Within 48 hours of leaving home, 42% of the kids on the street turned to prostitution. It truly is a matter of survival out there, and prostitution seems to be the quickest, easiest way to make money. Sad to say there are people out there that are buying those services as well. I just want to add something to that. One of the things we discovered and that people often don't think about is when you're under 15, you can't work in this country. So what else do you do? You have to break the law every day to survive. You have very, very few options. For kids, prostitution is a way of surviving, having a place to sleep, and possibly in their mind, it's the least harmful thing that I can do. I'm not stealing. I'm not hurting anyone. And the result is that they're hurting themselves. A question for Eric. In the film, you talked to a mother that was rather supportive, but were you able to talk to parents that were not supportive? And what could be the rationale? What do they think their children are going to do if they leave home at that age? None that would actually go on camera. 
And understandably, these are their personal lives, and no one wants their personal lives out there. We talked with one parent who, when she did first find out that her son was gay, didn't ask him to leave, but what she did is asked him to buy his own dishes. Every time after he took a shower or a bath, made him clean out the bathtub with bleach. Made life just miserable for him. Later she came around as she got more understanding about truly what it is to be gay. It was her knee-jerk reaction, pretty much because she was ignorant and was horrified because of her background and you know what she had learned her whole life, that this was just some horrible thing that was happening to her family, and she was literally scared. Do you think, though, that she understood that her child was at risk of being raped, killed? No. I don't think that thought process is part of it. I don't think that they think that far ahead. I think a lot of it is knee-jerk reaction. It's, uh, oh my God, how can this be happening? It's not quote-unquote right. They don't know what to do. And sad to say, a lot do overreact, and they do kick their kids out. Their motivation is, if we cut them off, then they'll realize how foolish this whole gay thing is, and hopefully it will straighten them out. They don't know what's out there. They don't know what they are sending their kids to. And a lot don't find out until it's too late. Martin, how do you get the film to people that need to see it? Well, that's always the million-dollar question. And then the question is always, are you preaching to the choir? And actually, Judy had a very good quote. Dennis asked me when I was doing my programs if I ever felt like I was only speaking to the choir, that the people who needed to hear me really didn't come. They uh, avoided it altogether. And uh, he said, well, you know, it's okay if the choir comes because even the choir needs to rehearse, which makes perfect sense. You just need to be reminded and uh, be worked up again about the issues and re-educated and re-energized. The gay community itself is very uneducated on this topic. I know from my own experience prior to this, I really didn't have a concept that this problem was out there and to the degree this was out there in the world. So if we can spark some mobilization initially, even in the gay community, which we can get to, that's a really good place for us to start, I think. What are the stumbling blocks to that? Because there is a perception that if you help gay youth, you're some sort of chicken hawk or pedophile. How do you get around that? It's a very tough question on how you overcome those perceptions. People in the gay community are very conscious about that. And it's not a pretty segment of society and definitely not a pretty segment of the gay community. And to a certain degree, there are things we don't want to deal with. And we don't want it to be a black mark on the community. But hopefully we will get the message out. I, I hope people will take an interest in it and realize that they are valuable resource within the community, these kids. These are not lazy, stupid kids. These are, you know, intelligent kids with dreams and aspirations who are willing to do what it takes to survive and want to be off the street and want to have as normal life as they can. They just need our help. We're speaking with Eric Criswell and Martin Perdonier, co-directors and co-producers of the documentary Out in the Cold. We're also speaking with the force behind the film, Judy Shepard. What can one person do? People listening to us right now, what should they do? One individual wanting to make a difference can change the world. I think it's important for each person to look at their own life and to decide where can I have an effect? Can I go to my pastor at my church and have a talk with him? Can I respond to him next time he 
makes an anti-gay comment from the pulpit? Can I go to my school? Am I a teacher? Am I an administrator? Do I have kids in school? Can I go talk to their teachers? Can I go to my community college? Can I go talk to City Hall? There's so many ways that one person can bring up this issue and address it, and everybody has to decide for themselves what they're most comfortable with. But one person sparking up a conversation or just responding in the right opportunity can really cause a lot of change. Back over to Judy. You've done a lot of talking about education. I I just think people don't realize how powerful they can be once they make the decision to try and help. And they're, they're actually kind of afraid of that power. They think that if they get involved, that it will overtake their lives. We all know in different aspects of our lives, when we volunteer to do things, pretty soon 10% of the people do 90% of the work. So they're, they're afraid. They're afraid of committing and, and adjusting their lives to this commitment. So really what it boils down to is just making the choice and understanding how important it is to really try and make things work, to be part of the system. You can't sit back and just let it happen around you without trying to make a difference. You need to be part of your community. And the young people of the gay and lesbian community who who don't find any support in their local communities go someplace else, like Los Angeles, where they think a city must have something that will help them. So the facilities in Los Angeles are just besieged with kids they can't help. So we need to get the message out to the smaller communities that there has to be something to help these kids, and not just kids from the gay and lesbian community. All our kids, all our kids for some reason are out there And it's not that all of them choose to be rebellious or live life on the edge, as they would put it. They're they're out there for some reason that we just need to try and figure out why they're running away from home. What are they not getting at home that they're getting on the street? And it's very scary for one person to commit to a stranger that on the outside, when they see that anger, those young people on the outside, the way they dress, that they look so different, they're afraid to move in and, and face that that anger and make that commitment to those kids. It's just a fear you have to overcome. It's easy to say, you know, I have no objection against the homosexual community. I just don't want to know about it. So if you're gay, just don't tell me and everything will be fine. Well, how unfair is that? That's just not right. You need to share who you are and be who you are with everybody around you. And I really think that a lot of the issues that are facing the community today, including the youth, is that if the cloak of mystery were removed from the community, if the ignorance were gone, then these issues would be moot. Some of them just would not exist. But what's going to eliminate that is everybody coming out all the time, making it familiar. Do some kids leave just to avoid coming out? Is it a sort of Damocles that they're not thrown out, but they just know what will happen and leave? I think that element is out there. Yeah, I'm sure there are a million reasons why the kids leave, but I'm sure avoiding the confrontation is one of the reasons that they leave. Is there anything else you'd like us to know? Everyone seems to be wondering, well, what has to happen? And I look at it in sort of a twofold solution. On the one hand, what I would love to see is the gay and lesbian community respond to this much in the way that we so compassionately responded to HIV and AIDS when it first appeared. It came into consciousness, and we were able to create wonderful systems to support people who were affected by HIV and AIDS. With this issue of homeless, gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgendered youth, we hope to increase enough awareness at this point that maybe we can start a movement like that and really get the community mobilized to add to the services that are there and to really address this issue. I mean, I think it is our responsibility to address this as a community. 
As far as everyone else, each person has to think about where they can have an effect, respond to that preacher, respond to the teacher, go talk to your school administrators. If we can all do those pieces, then we will see this come to awareness and we will begin to see it addressed. Anything else you'd like us to know? So many times, people walking down the street will see these kids on the street corner or or asking for money and they'll either think it or actually say it out loud, go get a job. But it's not that simple. They are actually living on the street. They are sleeping on the street with what they have, what they can carry. And they can't go out and get a job. They have nowhere that they can get a shower every day, clean up every day. They don't have an alarm clock to get up to go to work. They don't have a residence. And it's very difficult to get a job without residence. But unfortunately, they can't get a residence without having a job. It's such a catch-22. And the longer they're out there, the more involved they do get in in drugs and prostitution. Then you're dealing with many other issues, especially with the youth. A lot of them who are on the street at a young age didn't finish school, so they don't have the education. They don't know what it's like to be responsible. They don't know what it is to pay a bill, simply because they never reached that point in their learning. Is part of the problem invisibility because when when I see a guy pushing a shopping cart, I go, oh, homeless guy. If I see a bunch of kids hanging out on the corner, it never occurs to me. Definitely. And I think that's why a lot of people are surprised at how big the problem is because they're not that visible. Um, a lot of them do blend in. I mean, they're, they're not pushing the shopping carts around for the most part. They do hang out in groups. They look like any other kid except that they are homeless. Mrs. Shepard. Are there other things? What other things? There are always other things. What other things would you like us to know about this film, the Matthew Shepard Foundation, things you've learned over the last few years? Well, it's really that the issues that face the community aren't that different than the issues that face America at large. We just need to take the time to recapture these kids because we're losing so much potential in these young people, and uh, we need to figure out how to address their problems. I just encourage people to get involved in their local communities, organizations, and vote. You know, be part of the system to help it change. What is the job of a parent? The job of the parent is to love and support their kids no matter what. That's the job of a parent. We've been speaking with Eric Criswell, Martin Bedonier, and Judy Shepard. For more information on this or other projects of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, Point your internet browser to www.matthewshepherd.org. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. You leave in the morning with everything you own in a little black case. Alone on a platform, the wind and the rain in the sand.
they put you down And as hard as they would try They'd have to make you cry But you never cried to them Just to your soul find Out in the Cold on a streaming platform, but if you do, let us know so we can share the link with other listeners. There's still time for a last word. A couple of years ago, IMRU co-sponsored a storytelling competition in Hollywood called Hear Me Out, and TC, one of the finalists, shone through with memories of her mother. My mother left rural Arkansas when she was 14 years old. She was tired of picking cotton. She moved to Los Angeles, stayed with a cousin, and found a job. About a year later, she met my father, Willie. And the next year, she had my sister at 17. I followed three years later. One night, my father came home one more time, drunk again. They fought. She was tired of fighting. She waited till he passed out. She tied him up. She beat him packed our bags, and we left, and we never went back. That was the kind of woman my mother was. I remember growing up, there was always something to do. She made things. She sewed all of our clothes, cooked all of our food. She taught us how to garden. She made arts and crafts. These were the things that I remember about her. My mother was really no nonsense. She didn't take any mess. I remember once my sister got into an argument with a boy in the neighborhood and his older sister came to help him. And my mother came outside and she said, this is a kid's fight. And if you get into it, I'm going to get into it. So I always felt like she was this person that was strong, was always willing. You know, we all had chores in the house. We all had things that we had to do, cook, clean. She taught us how to garden, how to grow things. And if you heard those heels clicking on a Saturday morning, <laughs> that meant we were washing walls and cleaning baseboards, you know. She was the kind of lady that always told us the truth, whether we were doing well or whether we weren't doing well, you know. Um, her line to me was, the more money you make, the more you spend, the less you accomplish. She told my brother, you're my son and I love you, but I don't like you very much. <laughs> and my sister had a baby pretty early and she was still young and she wanted to party, she wanted to do things and she didn't want to pay rent. And my mother demanded if you were old enough to have a child, then you're old enough to take care of it. So you need to pay rent. And she went to her and she said, well, I don't have the rent money, I have to pay my car note. And she said, well, you and that pretty little baby can go sleep in your car. <laughs> So she was always straightforward. You know, we grew up as the house where all the kids played. My mother would do serendipitous arts and crafts in the summertime and have all the kids come over. We would go to the local park and swim for the summer. We would get in our Ford station wagon and drive to the beach, to the mountains. 
So she was always trying to expose us to new things. She turned 40, she found a lump in her breast and brought us all together and explained what was happening. It was really, really sad for all of us and really, really frightful because she was the only person that we had at that time. So she had a mastectomy and everything went well for 10 years. And then it came back. And this time it didn't leave. It ravaged her body. It broke her down. We became the caregivers. But she never lost her spirit. We are all a part of who she is. Strong, willful, honest, and always of service to others. That was my mother, Rosie Mae Miller. She was my guide. She was my friend. She was my champion. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles, You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with a Mother's Day song by Kevin Yee, featuring the Gay Men's Chorus L.A. and Queer Tet. Good night. Hi, Mom. I just wanted to say on your very special day... I remember when I came out the closet I thought you'd think it was wrong Oh my god, I was so nervous But then you started to laugh And you told me you knew all along (laughs) Mom, you're so funny And I'm so lucky That you accepted me And now I have to say Happy Mother's Day Love you a lot Love your gay son And always accepting me Your gay son Your gay son Your gay son Gay son Now I know when I'm feeling low You always know what to do Mom, you know just what to do You drag me out the house We head to the mall And you buy me some new shoes Okay.
you're the best.